month. Kia and happy Pride Month. Tonight's episode of Books and Beyond is a repeat of last year's March 1st interview featuring the Sisters Gay. Enjoy. Welcome to Books and Beyond with your host, Alison. Join us for half an hour of information, entertainment, reading recommendations and beyond. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. This girl, and she works in a library, yeah, standing there by... Hello, my Hairanae, kia ora, and welcome to Books and Beyond. This is your host, Alison, and today I'm in the studio with Adrian, Claire and Peggy, who are from the literary ensemble The Sisters Gay, and they join us direct from their smash hit at the same, same but different literary festival, where they presented their show called Classics which was an after-hours story time for grown-ups and other family with twists in the tales. So kia lovely sisters. Morning. Kia ora. Hello. Thanks for being here. It's so lovely to have you with me today. And congratulations on such a fine show. It was a real triumph. So, Claire, I'd um, like to, to come to you first um, because this is the second year of The Sisters Gay. What led you to create this troupe? Well, I, I guess um, as I work at the Greyland Library, we've been keen on doing something in the Pride Festival for a number of years, but it's been really hard to know what to do that is going to be a bit different from your standard author event or um, authors reading their work, that kind of thing. And then I thought, well, what do we do in libraries? We tell stories, and we tell stories to children often. Um, but how about a story time for grown-ups? So um, I came up with the idea of the Sisters Gay um, as opposed to the Brothers Grimm. Oh. And we, we made our first, um, our first session was uh, about fairy tales. So uh, different spins on, on the idea of fairy tales, like the Brothers Grimm, but with a twist. With a twist. Oh, wonderful, Claire. That's, that's fantastic. And Adrian, um, what was it like reading such great works in, in front of quite a, quite a large audience? Well, like Claire said, you know, I'm so used to reading stories for the kids. Um, it was just really exciting to be able to do it for um, grown-ups, as it were, um, and to, you know, really have that connection with the stories that we were telling and seeing their connection with them as well. Yeah, it was just really fantastic. Yeah, oh, wonderful. It's really great when you get that feedback from the audience, isn't it? Mm. And Peggy, I'll just come to you now. Um, you had the experience of reading a passage from a novel whose author was actually sitting in the audience. Um, and what was that like? Yes, well, it was a little daunting, to be honest. I introduced myself to her when she arrived and let her know that we'd be reading from her book, and she seemed surprised um, and yet very pleased. I noticed afterwards that she got a lot of, of positive attention um, from the reading of her book. Um, our real concern, however, was that there might be someone in the audience that would recognize themselves in that reading, <laughs> and apparently someone did. Oh, oh, yes. So the intrigue and the drama, it's fabulous. Oh, well done. Well, look, what we're going to do now, um, we're going to revisit 
some of the readings from the other night. And as I said before, the title of the show was Classics. So um, first up, we've got Claire. And Claire's going to read an excerpt from the book of short stories called Tahuri, uh, written by Ngahuia Te Awe Kotuku. Um, take it away, Claire. And then we'll have a, just a, a brief chat afterwards. Thank you. This is called Auntie Marlene. They were off in the taxi, Mum and her husband, just as Auntie Marlene came in through the door, following her smells, which always came in first. Grease, sour tobacco and oiled rows of chestnut hair running short-cropped from the forehead to the neck. Motorbike fumes, dust and worn-out leather in the soft brown folds of her fighter pilot's coat. She was my babysitter. She'd arrive in a crackle of smoke from her three castles roll your own into her machine's exhaust and she'd pull up by the house, the engine of her Norton chugging reluctantly to a standstill. With a smile to my mother and a slight nod to the man at her side, she marched smartly up the back steps, her heavy lace-up shoes creaking, the sharp grey edges of her flannel trousers catching the sun. She had a routine which was always strictly followed. She would shake my hand, and I'd always wonder at the coolness of her ivory-white fingers and severely clipped nails, and the spoiled bit of skin stained by nicotine. Then she would take off her coat and unroll a long knitted green scarf from around her neck, revealing a buttoned shirt collar sitting above a thick navy blue pullover. The shirt was blue too. She'd hang the coat and scarf on the back door hook, taking some stuff out of the pockets. Three castles, matches in a beehive box, black balls and a book, red cloth covered with brittle library plastic. The famous five again. I watched, thinking greedily about a black ball melting sweet and gooey in my mouth as she made two cups of cocoa. And with the famous five's latest adventure tucked into her armpit, the drinks steaming and balanced in one hand and the black balls in the other, she walked ahead of me into the bedroom. After the cocoa, I was allowed one black ball, just one, which I'd clatter between my teeth and lick beneath my tongue, willing it to last and last. And as she turned the fourth page, my head heavy with the cocoa and the day's activities... I was out cold. Auntie Marlene's voice was like that, soft and low and droning, even at the most exciting bits where Joe catches the runaway horse or Quentin grabs the smuggler. Auntie Marlene's quiet monotone stayed on the same dogged, slow, dreary level, and I drifted quietly away, safe in the murmur of the story. That was part of the routine, too, that I fell asleep early so that she would go back to the kitchen, make another cup of cocoa, turn on the wireless and read the paper. She was doing this one night when I had to go to the lab. She didn't notice me creeping around. She was behind the paper, hidden by clouds of curling tobacco smoke. Auntie Marlene. She had broken little teeth with mossy brown edges from all the smoking and an awkward, rare, lopsided smile so that if she smiled, she showed only the left side of her jaw, where the teeth were not so bad. Her skin was downy and sallow and moved a lot as she talked. Soft creases and deep grooves around her very neat, very straight nose. And her eyes were kind and hollow, 
the colour of fading autumn leaves. Sad. She never, ever laughed. Auntie Marlene gave me my first cat and my very first look at what I could become. Mm. Oh, thanks, Claire. That's beautiful. And I find that really moving, like so many of the stories in, in that book. That was lovely. Thank you. Thanks so much. Now, um, next up, we've got Peggy. And um, Peggy's going to read from the book Zami, a new spelling of my name, written by Audrey Lord. Yes, um, this book was published in 1982, which is a very, uh, very similar time to my own coming out. Um, and it made me reflect on the added difficulty of being multiple forms of other but it's also a beautiful telling of the joy of finding your true self. We made love over and over and over again, pausing only to turn on the lights in the early dusk and to feed the cat. The sun went down and the steam came up and the whole room seemed alight with the fragrance of our bodies. For every secret hurt of Muriel's, there was one of mine to match and the similarities of our loneliness as well as of our dreams convinced us that we were made for each other. Muriel and I talked endlessly. I knew who I was going to spend the rest of my life with, yet it seemed as if there was never enough time to talk and share and catch up on all the pieces of each other that had existed before we met. As our newness became more known to each other, I marveled at how very dear Muriel's face was becoming to me. The fact of us was a most wonderful and novel idea, one that I pondered over, examining and savoring every aspect of what it meant to be permanently connected to another human being. To go to bed and to wake up again day after day besides a woman, to lie in bed with our arms around each other and drift in and out of sleep, to be with each other, not as a quick stolen pleasure, nor as a wild treat. But like sunlight, day after day in the regular course of our lives. I was discovering all the ways that love creeps into life when two selves exist closely, when two women meet. Like the smell of Muriel on my sweatshirt and the straight black hairs caught in my glove. One night, I cried to think of how lucky we both were to have found each other since it was clear that we were the only ones in the world who could understand what we understood in the instantaneous manner which we understood it. We both agreed ours was a union made in heaven for which each of us had already paid several hells. Mm, oh, that's beautiful. Thanks, Peggy. Beautifully read. And um, I, I found this its such a sad memoir, but so much hope. Mm, yes, amid that poetry and yeah, very very positive and um, more of of the the coming of age and and as you say to be coming of age amid so many other factors that um, mark you out as as other very very difficult isn't it yeah oh look that's wonderful now um, we're going to move around the table to Adrian now and you're going to read us um, just a slightly longer excerpt and um, this is taken from Tipping the Velvet by Sarah Waters so take it away Adrian oh thank you ladies and gentlemen he cried a little treat for you now a little bit of 
elegance and top drawer style. If you have champagne in your glasses, there was an ironical cheering at this. Raise them now. If you have beer, why, beer's got bubbles, don't it? Raise that too. Above all, raise your voices. As I give to you, direct from the Phoenix Theatre, Dover, our very own Kentish Swell, our diminutive Feversham masher, Miss Kitty Butler. There was a burst of hand clapping and a few damp whoops. The orchestra struck up with some jolly number. I heard the creak and whisper of the rising curtain. All unwillingly, I opened my eyes. Then I opened them wider and lifted my head. The heat, my weariness, were quite forgotten. Piercing the shadows of the naked stage was a single shaft of rosy limelight, and in the centre of this there was a girl, the most marvellous girl, I knew it at once, that I had ever seen. Of course, we had male impersonated turns at the palace before, but in 1888, in the provincial halls, the masher acts were not the things they are today. When Nellie Power had sung The Last of the Dandies to us six months before, she had worn tights and bullion fringe, just like a ballet girl, only carried a cane and a billycock hat to make her boyish. Kitty Butler did not wear tights or spangles. She was, as Tricky had billed her, a kind of perfect West End swell. She wore a suit, a handsome gentleman's suit, cut to her size and lined at the cuffs and the flaps with flashing silk. There was a rose in her lapel and lavender gloves at her pocket. From beneath her waistcoat shone a stiff front shirt of snowy white with a stand-up collar two inches high. Around the collar was a white bow tie and on her head there was a topper. When she took the topper off, as she did now to salute the audience with a gay hello, one saw that her hair was perfectly cropped. It was the hair, I think, that drew me most. If I'd ever seen women with hair as short as hers, it was because they had spent time in hospital or prison, or because they were mad. They could never have looked like Kitty Butler. Her hair fitted her head like a cap that had been sewn just for her by some nimble-fingered milliner. I would say it was brown. Brown, however, is too dull a word for it. It was, rather, the kind of brown you might hear sung, ab- sung about, a nut brown or a russet. It was almost, perhaps, the colour of chocolate. But then chocolate has no luster, and this hair shone in the blaze of light, the limes like taffeta. It curled at her temple slightly, and over her ears, and when she turned her head a little to put her head hat back on, I saw a strip of pale flesh at the nape of her neck, where the collar ended and the hairline began. For all the fire of the hot, hot hall made me shiver. She looked, I suppose, like a very pretty boy, for her face was a perfect oval, and her eyes were large and dark at the lashes, and her lips were rosy and full. Her figure, too, was boy-like and slender, yet rounded, vaguely but unmistakably, at the bosom, the stomach, and the hips, in no way a real boy's ever was. And her shoes, I noticed after a moment, had two-inch heels to them. But she strode like a boy and stood like one with her feet far apart and her head, hands thrust carelessly into her trouser pockets and her head at an arrogant angle at the very front of the stage and when she sang, her voice was a boy's voice, sweet and terribly true. Her effect upon that overheated hall was wonderful. Like me, my neighbours all sat up and gazed at her with shining eyes. Her songs were all well-chosen ones, things like Drink Up Boys and Sweethearts and Wives, which the likes of G.H. McDermott had already made famous. 
and with which we could all, in consequence, join in, though it was peculiarly thrilling to have them sung to us, not by a gent, but by a girl in necktie and trousers. In between each song, she addressed herself in swaggering, confidential tone to the audience and exchanged little bits of nonsense with Tricky Reeves at his chairman's table. Her speaking voice was like her singing one, strong and healthy and wonderfully warm upon the air. Her accent was sometimes musical cockney, sometimes theatrical genteel, sometimes pure broad Kent. Her set lasted no longer than the customary 15 minutes or so, but she was cheered and shouted back on stage at the end of that, twice over. Her final song was a gentle one, a ballad about roses and a lost sweetheart. As she sang, she removed her hat and held it to her bosom. Then she pulled the flower from her lapel and placed it against her cheek and seemed to weep a little. The audience in sympathy let out one huge collective sigh and bit their lips to hear her boyish tones grow suddenly so tender. All at once, however, she raised her eyes and gazed at us over her knuckles. We saw that she wasn't weeping at all, but smiling. And then, suddenly... Winking hugely and roguishly, very swiftly she stepped once again to the front of the stage and gazed into the stalls for the prettiest girl. When she found her, she raised her hand and the rose went flying over the shimmer of the footlights over the orchestra pit to land in the pretty girl's lap. We went wild for her then. We roared and stamped and she, all gallant, raised her hat to us and, waving, took her leave. We called for her, but there was no more encores. The curtain fell, the orchestra played, Tricky struck his gavel upon the table, blew out his candle, and it was the interval. I peered, blinking into the seats below, trying to catch sight of the girl who had been thrown the flower. I could not think of anything more wonderful at that moment than to receive a rose from Kitty Butler's hand. Oh, fabulous, Adrian. Thanks so much for that. I wanted to cheer at one step. I had to stop myself from <laughs> from calling out. And, Jeb, what an impressive debut novel um, it was yeah. from Sarah Waters. Um, it really made a, a splash when it was first released in 1998. And it, it ruffled a few feathers, too. And I remember that in libraries as well. But, I mean, I think that was a good thing yes. that, it, that it did that. Um, and to me, it's, you know, it's another example of the that real importance of the coming-of-age story. So fabulous. Well done, Adrian. I really enjoyed that. Now we're going to come back around to Peggy. And um, Peggy's going to read to us an excerpt from Who Was That Woman Anyway? And this is the novel by local author Aorewa McLeod who happened to be in the audience um, during your performance a few nights ago. So take it away, Peg. Thanks, Alison. This is from the chapter When God Was a Woman, 1982. Six of us met to set up a self-help therapy group. We were going to meet weekly and do exercises from a highly recommended fat red handbook in our own hands with five Matisse-derived women dancing on its cover. We felt we were avoiding the hierarchy of having a counselor who knew more than we did. Across from me was Donna, a big woman. I'm a charge nurse, she said bulkily. She wore a long skirt and a t-shirt with a large women's symbol on it and Birkenstock sandals over socks. 
Eloise, whose house it was, looked fragile, no, frazzled, in an unattractive teal blue crimpling trouser suit. Next to her was Frankie, cropped blonde hair and jeans and emblemless t-shirt, jiggling her legs tensely, a carpenter's assistant. Jan and Ruth I already knew. Jan was wearing the smartly creased matching trousers and jacket she always wore in a muted purple. She was tall and lanky and specialized in tax evasion. Tax avoidance, that is. She'd already saved me thousands. Ruth was tall and handsome and red-haired and my best friend. She probably would have been my lover, but for the fact that she was attracted to dark, sullen women who didn't like her, which was not exactly me. She was wearing a tie-dyed floaty top over tie-dyed tights, jingling with clusters of cheap Asian jewelry. I introduced myself as a university lecturer and a lesbian. I felt nervous about saying the word lesbian, but I knew both Jan and Ruth were, and that therapy groups were meant to be honest and confidential and all that. So I added that I'd been in a three-year live-in relationship, and that I now wished I'd said no to us living together. I've never been good at saying no. Brilliant, said Frankie. So am I. A dyke, I mean. I don't have a partner, though. I sleep around. Lots of really nice baby dykes looking for one-night stands. I did have a live-in partner once, but she was into pain. That's not my scene. Ruth twisted her long red hair around her fingers. I wouldn't call myself a dyke. That's an ugly word. I'd call myself a spiritualist feminist who is woman-identified. I'm relating to Lucinda, but I don't expect it to last long. None of my affairs do. I guess you'd call me a serial monogamist. Three months, five months, one time it got up to three years. Never any longer. Always women, though. And in this case, Lucinda has a primary relationship, which is not me. She lives with Morag. And says Morag knows about me and approves, but Donna interrupted. Aha, I thought, she's going to be the bossy one. I'm a feminist, and I'm woman-identified. I call myself a lesbian, but I love men. I have a husband I love and relate to, Jeremy. He's totally supportive. We share the housework equally and avoid penetrative sex. We all looked at her with what I assumed was admiration. Goodness me, that's advanced, I said to break the silence as we mulled over penetrative sex. Jan was next. I was in a play center group in Fangare, and I fell in love with another play center mother. Or rather, we fell in love with each other. We gathered up our children and ran away together to Auckland. This was happening all over. Some playgroups collapsed as the mothers realized they preferred one another to their husbands. Most of the new lesbians I met were ex-playgroup mothers. (laughs) Sorry, uh, we're all laughing. Isn't that just wonderful? Uh, And such an important slice of our our history. Mm. Um, And, you know, we can now laugh at the notion of the the play centre mothers being so enmeshed and intertwined. Um, But I was thinking about this yesterday and this 
we're talking about a time that was pre-internet. So I wonder if Play Centre was kind of like a social network, but you know, both virtual and real. What mm. do you think, Pete? Yeah, it's, uh, I agree. And it's also a universal theme. I was in Indiana during that time, but I still recognize the characters from the feminist lesbian community I was a part of all the way on the other side of the world. Mm, mm, isn't it? It's just um, nothing much changes, is it? <laughs> yeah, so it's very true. And on the subject of, of nothing much changing in, in terms of our feelings and love and life and that sort of thing, I was wondering if we could move back in time just a little bit. And um, Adrian's going to read um, some fragments from the, the great poet Sappho. And we're actually going back a long way for this. Two and a half thousand years ago. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so uh, Sappho's um, works that have survived are mostly fragmented, so uh, it's not the, you know, full poem, as it were, uh, that was originally written by her. But uh, I've got four to share today. Some say an army on horseback, some say on foot, and some say ships are the most beautiful things on this black earth. But I say, it is whatever you love. It's easy to show this. Just look at Helen, beautiful herself, beyond everything human, and she left the perfect husband and went sailing off to Troy without a thought for her child or her dear parents led astray. Reminding me of Anactoria, who is gone, and those lovely, whose lovely walk and bright shimmering face I would rather see than all the chariots and armed men in Lydia but it cannot be. How is it possible now not to feel endlessly dizzy, O Kypris, mistress, whoever the person one loves here? How is it possible not to want one's sufferings to be eased? What is your intention to stir me up and tear me apart madly with desire that loosens the knees? Look at him, just like a god, that man sitting across from you. Whoever he is listening to your close, sweet voice, your irresistible laughter, and oh yes, it sets my heart racing. One glance at you and I can't get any words out. My voice cracks, a thin flame runs under my skin, my eyes go blind, my ears ring, a cold sweat pours down my body. I tremble all over, turn paler than grass. Look at me, just a shade from dead. Truly, I wish I were dead. She was weeping when she left me, and she said many things to me, and said this, How much we have suffered, Sappho. Truly, I don't want to leave you. And I answered her, Farewell, go and remember me. You know how we care for you. And if you should not, I want to remind you of our moments of grace. The many garlands of violets, roses and crocuses you put on my head. The many necklaces woven of flowers on my soft skin all the myrrh expensive you anointed and on soft coverlets tender quenched your desire oh beautiful thanks so much for that and um, haven't they they've really truly stood the test of time mm. those beautiful fragments of yeah. poetry haven't they and um, two and a half thousand years later I think we're we're pretty much the same in, in many respects. 
Um, so, Claire, uh, before we, we um, have to sadly wrap up for, for today, I was just going to ask you, um, what's, what's next for the Sisters Gay? Well, I think we've agreed that we'll do it again. So Good. we're going to become a trilogy. Um, we've done two, and um, uh, I guess this is the way that book series grow sometimes. Um, so we haven't decided on a theme for next time, uh, but we will be doing it. Wonderful. Oh, I can't wait. So very exciting. And um, well done, the Sisters Gay. So you, I think you're all, all marvellous. So um, on that note, I'm just wanting to thank you again for coming in today and sharing the goodness from your classic show. And just to remind uh, to our listeners that the works mentioned today are going to be listed on our show notes and these can be accessed via the Auckland Library's blog or via the Planet FM website. So until next time, uh, happy reading. Haere rā, ka kite ano. And thank you, lovely sisters. by Auckland Libraries. Find us online at aucklandlibraries.govt.nz and catch the program next Sunday at 9.35pm on 104.6 FM or anytime online at planetaudio.org.nz slash books and beyond. Every day, every day, every day.